Good afternoon, everybody. So, uh, spring cleaning. Uh, not something I am well familiar with, having never done it. Um, but I'm told that traditionally spring cleaning is a deep clean of the house and all of its contents. Um, I googled this. Uh, before the advent of the vacuum cleaner, the best time to clean your house, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, was in March or April, um, because it's getting warm enough to open the windows, but um, not so warm as to have insects being an issue. Uh, so you could leave the windows open while you dusted and cleaned and let the wind blow the dust uh, out of your house, uh, which is great if you're asthmatic. Um, the origins of spring cleaning, where did it start and when? Um, some would suggest that it's a Persian practice uh, to clean the house before the start of the new year. Um, so the Persian new year falls on the first day of spring. They call it Kune to Kuni, uh, forgive my pronunciation, which literally means shake the house, to shake the house. And they will do a, a complete deep clean um, of the houses and everything inside them uh, before the new year begins. Some would suggest that it is partly a Jewish tradition. Um, the Passover and the following Feast of Unleavened Bread this year finished yesterday. It ran from Friday the 30th of March through to Saturday the 7th of April. And traditionally, um, that involves a thorough clean of the house before it begins. So, um, let's see why that is. Let's just uh, go to the first instance of the Passover in Exodus, uh, chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and starting at verse 14. So this is um, the Lord speaking through Moses and Aaron to the children of Israel and telling them what they should do for the Passover. Verse 14 of Exodus chapter 12. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So the, the Jews were instructed to remove leaven not just from their bread, but from their entire house. And by extension, uh, many Jews to this day give their house a deep clean before Passover, sometimes leaving a small lump of leaven hidden away somewhere for children to find and remove, thereby declaring the house leaven-free. Passover occurs on the 14th day of the first month in the Jewish calendar, Abib, um, and that falls in spring. So you could say that this purge of leaven could be described as spring cleaning. Now cleaning is an image that is used throughout the biblical narrative. Um, we'll, we'll have a reading in a second of Psalm 51 to introduce some cleaning imagery and then spend the, the next few minutes, the rest of this talk pretty much, um, following this thread through the Bible to see if we can spot any common themes or learn any useful lessons uh, before coming back to consider what spring cleaning really means for us. So, Psalm 51. Okay, Psalm 51. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. O 
Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. <coughs> For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then shall they offer bulls on your altar. Thank you. So, this psalm, Psalm 51, is uh, written by King David after he's been called out by Nathan the prophet for sleeping with the wife of another man, and uh, that woman was called Bathsheba. David, in this psalm, recognises the wrongfulness of his actions and this psalm is essentially a prayer of repentance. So you'll probably have noticed this as we read through it but let's just skim back through um, looking for references to, to cleaning and imagery that um, would be associated with it. So in the very first verse um, we have at the end of the verse blot out my transgressions and then in the second verse wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Down to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. Verse 9. Blot out all of my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And then verse 12. Restore me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So throughout, throughout this psalm we kind of have all these, these images that are used that you'd associate with cleaning. And David lightens forgiveness of sins by God here to a cleansing process. Verse 2 kind of sums up this imagery where it says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity 
and cleanse me from my sin. So sin represents dirtiness, whilst our state after God's forgiveness represents cleanliness. <coughs> this isn't just unique to this psalm. If you fast forward um, into the New Testament and um, come to the first book of John and chapter 1, right near the end of the New Testament. Three epistles of John, then Jude and Revelation. So we're looking at the first epistle of John and chapter 1. Is there a common theme here? Um, Let's start reading at verse 5. This is a message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive (laughs) us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, there's this idea that sin Sinfulness is an unclean thing, and that to be cleaned is to be forgiven by God. But this introduces another idea in verse 7 there, where it says, um, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, what does that mean? What, what, what does that add into it? How can we be cleansed by the blood of a man that the Bible claims is in heaven? Well, firstly, and perhaps most obviously, it's not referring to physical cleaning with literal blood. So, what is the link between the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins? Well, Jesus himself uh, gives us the answer during the Passover meal with his disciples, which is often referred to as the Last Supper, shortly before he was crucified. If you, if you come to Matthew chapter 26... First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look from verse 26. So this is at the Passover meal with his disciples. Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that verse 28 there is uh, really what we want to pick out from this. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus, throughout his ministry, knew that he was going to die. Um, we have several pieces of evidence for that. If you, if you flip back a few pages to chapter 20, you'll see in, uh, from verse 17, where we read, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So Jesus was aware that he was going to have to die. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded by law to offer up um, animals and possessions as sacrifices. And this was to reinforce the idea that the wages of sin are death. And I quote that from Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin are death. So that essentially means sin will always result in some way in death. So in the case of the law, the guilty party had to offer their best animal, with one acceptable sin offering being a lamb without blemish. And uh, we'll find that in Leviticus 4, where we'll go in a minute. Jesus lived a sinless life, serving God faultlessly. That's what the, the gospel records tell us. And as such, he did not deserve to die, because if the wages of sin are death, and you don't sin, then you don't deserve to die. If we flick forward to the first epistle of Peter, in chapter 1, this is just before the letters of John, we were in a minute ago. <coughs> first Peter, chapter 1, and let's read from verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, to conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So here we have those two ideas brought together. We have the idea of redemption by the blood of Jesus, and we also have the idea of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. And um, if we think back to that passage we were in in Matthew a second ago, um, we see that the shedding of this blood as part of the sacrifice was um, that it was shed for many for the remission of sins. So therefore, the way in which we are cleansed through Jesus' blood <coughs> follows the pattern of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now that's all very well and good, but what does that actually mean in useful terms? Well, let's, let's go to Leviticus now and examine the Old Testament sacrifices a little bit more closely. Um, Leviticus chapter 4. Third book of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 4. And we're just going to cast our eyes down this chapter. So this is setting out all of the different sin offerings um, the Israelites were commanded um, to offer in various circumstances. So let's just jump into specific verses. Um, Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 4. The guilty party, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. And again down to verse 15. And the guilty party, the elders of the congregation, shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. And again, down to verse 24, he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat this time, and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. Verse 29, a bit further down, he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. And finally down to verse 33, um, this is the one that refers to the lamb, so verse 32, if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, 
Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. So the, the common factor here is that in each case, the guilty party that had brought the animal had to lay their hand on the head of the animal as it was slaughtered. In essence, they had to be physically connected to the sacrifice that was being made, and it had to have an impact on them. Their sin had resulted in the death of this innocent animal. So, using that imagery then, if Jesus was sacrificed as a lamb for our sins, how do we become connected to him in such a way and feel that same sense of responsibility for our sins? If you come back into the New Testament now, we're going to go to the book of Romans. It comes after the four gospel records and after the book of Acts. Romans in chapter 6. This is a passage that we're going to come back to and look at in more detail. So I'm going to pinch a verse out of context here slightly. We're looking at verse 3 of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? So there's a link that we can have to the death of Jesus Christ. Full adult baptism, where the participant makes a confession of their faith and is then fully submerged in water, represents the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So, through baptism, we can be associated with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Now, you'll probably be asking yourself, how on earth have we got here from the title of spring cleaning? (laughs) We're kind of quite far down a rabbit hole. Um, But let's just recap. So, cleaning in the Bible, um, as we saw from Psalm 51, dirtiness represents sin, cleanliness represents our state after God's forgiveness. We've read that we are cleaned through the blood of Jesus, but on closer inspection by looking at the Old Testament law, that only applies if we have made a commitment to serve him through baptism. So then, uh, the answer is to get baptised, and that's us sorted, right? Well, no, not quite. Um, let's look at the context of that passage that we're in, in Romans 6. Um, it really, this, this the bit we're interested in starts from Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. So Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that last little passage there is really the key here. We should walk in newness of life. So after baptism, which this passage talks about, we have a responsibility to continually strive to be more like Jesus in everything that we do and not just to rely on the grace of God to forgive us whenever we get it wrong. However, we do get it wrong, quite a lot in my case. So where do we stand then? 
Do we just get baptised again and again and again ad infinitum? Let's go back to that passage in 1 John where we were. So we were in 1 John chapter 1 earlier and now we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2. So as we sort of discussed and saw in the, the first chapter of 1 John, um, the letter here is written to baptised men and women. And in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So John's writing to baptised men and women and states that Jesus is an advocate for them in heaven and acts as a propitiation or an appeasal for their sins. Now, according to Google, uh, the word propitiation um, is an action that is meant to regain someone's favour or to make up for something that you've done wrong. So through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we can be made acceptable to God even though we sin. So, having taken up fellowship in his blood through baptism, as uh, chapter 1 verse 6 said, uh, verse 7, sorry, that we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us all from sin. Having done that, we can pray to God and plead for his forgiveness for our sins through Jesus, thus becoming whiter than the snow, as we read in Psalm 51 earlier. In more modern terms, we are essentially given a clean slate and the chance to try to do better continually. Now, uh, you might have heard of communion, or might have been referred to as the breaking of bread, um, that some Christian do, uh, groups do, um, and it's often on a Sunday. And the very reason that this action happens is to remind <coughs> baptised men and women of the sacrifice that was made to give them this opportunity to be cleansed, and also the resulting commitment that they have, um, and that they've made, to walk in newness of life, as we as we read earlier. Come with me to First Corinthians, in chapter eleven. So we earlier on we talked about um, the Last Supper in Matthew, and this is um, a passage about the same event. First Corinthians, chapter eleven, starting at verse twenty-three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, do, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So the key here is that, that phrase, do this in remembrance of me. In remembering Jesus in bread and wine each week, it gives us the chance to stop and to take stock of ourselves. Where are we? Where are we trying to go? And are we heading in the right direction? If not, why not? And what can we do to fix it? So, um, we sort of started out by defining what spring cleaning is. 
uh, and some possible origins of the practice, including the Passover. We've considered cleanliness and dirtiness and what each of them symbolise in the Bible, as shown by David in Psalm 51. Dirtiness is due to sin and cleanliness represents our state having been forgiven by God. By considering the laws of sacrifice in the Old Testament, we've seen that access to this forgiveness is provided by full adult baptism, which is a symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus, following a confession of faith in God and acknowledgement of our responsibilities towards him. Unfortunately, we are still sinful beings and we still mess up. But by praying to God for forgiveness, with Jesus as a mediator, we can be given a fresh start again and again. However, that doesn't mean that we should take advantage of it. The reason that baptised members of the Christadelphian Church meet on a Sunday morning to share bread and wine is to help them remember the magnitude of the sacrifice made by Jesus and to renew their conviction to try harder to be more like him. I thought I'd take you now to a short parable in Matthew. When I started considering the the subject of spring cleaning, this is the, the first thing that my brain went to. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. And it reads, it's Jesus speaking a parable here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. When he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be also with this wicked generation. So the man in this parable manages to shake off an unclean spirit or a bad habit, if you like. Having got rid of it, he finishes off his uh, mental spring cleaning and simply does nothing instead. That's that. It's all clean, tidy, put away. But soon enough, in that empty space of time, the bad habit returns, and because it hasn't been replaced by anything else, there's a potential for even more bad habits to creep in. And from what was initially a promising start, the poor guy ends up with more problems than he'd started with. And so it is with sin and the opportunity for us to be washed clean of it. If no preventative actions are taken following that washing and any lessons learned put into action, we're on the risk of going round and round in circles and getting nowhere at all. Filling that void with good things and leaving no time for sin is what the Bible essentially prescribes here. And this links back to that statement that we mentioned from Romans earlier on. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. So then, uh, depending on what you want to take away from this talk, I have two basic challenges for you. The first challenge If you simply want to be a better person and continually improve, take advice from the parable of the cleaned house. When you manage to get rid of a bad habit, replace it with something good to avoid the issue reoccurring. This might be that you choose to donate money to charity instead of putting a bet on the football, or you choose to read a passage of scripture instead of binge-watching a pointless series on Netflix. The second challenge I would offer is that if you are intrigued by 
the full and continual spring cleaning that can be obtained through baptism into Jesus and the subsequent requirement to walk in newness of life and try to emulate his behaviour, consider what the extension of that passage that I alluded to earlier in Romans chapter 6 means. It's Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Why should we want to be cleaned of our sins through Jesus? What benefit could it possibly have for us? So this is, this is a takeaway consideration. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. We know that. We've looked at that. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you.